you haven't already, would you go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 2. If you're visiting with us this morning, or you've recently begun attending, I want to welcome you. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. We're glad that you've joined with us to hear and to receive all that Christ has accomplished and announced by his work and ministry. We continue this morning in the Gospel of Mark, as was just read moments ago in chapter 2 making our way through this book that tells us of the good news of the gospel that's found in Christ Jesus. And so with his word before us, a brief prayer as we consider and ask for his help. Our God and our Father, we ask that you would be faithful to your promise to teach sinners in the way, to instruct us in your purposes. Lord, we ask that you would give to us and reveal to us your grace this morning, that by your grace you might teach us you might train us, that you might continue to conform us to the image of your Son, and that you might cause, out of the great overflow of our response of hearing who you are and what you have done for sinners, that we would find our lives joyfully responding to all that you've accomplished, that we too might know what it means to follow after you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we read through our Bibles, one of the persistent and unfolding themes, and really one of the unfolding dilemmas, is hearing that God is holy and man is sinful. Now, this really wouldn't be much of a dilemma if the story of the scriptures went on to say just that God abandoned sinners in judgment, the end. But thankfully, that's not at all what we find in our Bibles. Instead, we find the story of the scriptures laying out this promise and fulfillment of how God actually makes a way to dwell with sinners. How could this be? Well, if we're going to answer that question well and rightly, it requires that we listen carefully to the Gospel of Mark. Because... At the very center of the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 8, this question is put before us, as Christ puts it before his disciples, who do you say that I am? And how we answer that question brings clarity to this dilemma of a holy God and a sinful man. Who we say Jesus is and who we understand him to be helps us make sense of the entire redemptive arc of the scriptures announcing the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And Mark has written his gospel, gathering up the words and the works of Jesus to help us understand that. And amidst his words and works, he places the responses of others to his ministry. And what you'll find is often just as helpful as the words and the works of Christ are looking at the responses of others to Christ, for their responses are intended to teach us just as much as the ministry and the teaching of Christ. And in the passage before us, we're introduced to the scribes. And the scribes ask two questions that really get to the heart of the matter. Did you notice what they were? In verse 7, they ask, why does this man speak like that? And then again, in verse 16, they ask another question. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
How Jesus responds to these two questions is simultaneously the greatest comfort and the greatest rebuke. And if we would be faithful listeners and seek to be faithful followers of Christ, we need to hear both this word of comfort and this word of rebuke if we are going to understand who Christ is and why this gospel is actually good news. If we are going to understand the person and ministry of Christ, then we need to understand how Jesus deals with sin and how he relates to sinners. So what we're going to do this morning is just respond to those two questions by saying that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and Jesus has the ambition to pursue sinners. And it is essentially the answer to the scribe's two questions. He has the authority to forgive sins and the ambition to pursue sinners. Let's consider, first of all, Christ and his authority to forgive sins. This takes us back to verse 1. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark sets this narrative in a bit of context, telling us that Jesus has now returned to Capernaum some days later, and what is consistent is that the crowds continue to follow him. What Mark has been saying, that essentially everywhere Jesus goes, masses of people come to him. And in Mark, when he talks about crowds, he's not talking about crowds as we would talk about crowds, as often we assume crowds are are really the the benchmark of success. If there's a crowd, that means it's good, therefore this is a good thing. But oftentimes the crowds end up becoming hindrances because of mixed motives and why they come there. And what we're told is that these crowds are so intense that they're continuing to press about the house. And Mark even adds this curious detail, which will become relevant in a moment, that they couldn't even get through the door because of the amount of people pressing about to hear Jesus. But really, regardless of their motive of why they came, knowing that of his ability to teach and his ability to heal, Mark tells us that Jesus was there preaching the word to them. That is what is happening. A very typical Mediterranean home, crowd pressed in about it, and Jesus, his voice rising above, preaching the word to them. Mark says, in the midst of that preaching, there was this sudden distraction. It began with just a bit of scratching, no doubt. You can imagine a bit of dust beginning to fall from the ceiling. Then sunlight suddenly pours into the room. And below that, a cot being lowered down right in front of Jesus as he is preaching. In that day and in that region, many houses had flat roofs, sometimes with a staircase to get up to that roof 
to enjoy it. And they were made with typical beams and rafters, but then overlaid with brushwood and branches, and you would overlay that with mud and straw to keep them weather tight. So in some sense, it wouldn't be that hard to unroof the roof to get this man down below where Jesus is at teaching. Now, as shocking as this would have been if you were there that day, this is not actually the surprising plot twist in the story. This is just simply the backdrop for the real surprise. And what is the real surprise of this story? It's how Jesus responds. If you were there in that crowd listening to the teaching of Jesus and you had heard his teaching in recent weeks or you'd seen him perform miracles in nearby regions, you probably had a pretty good suspicion of what was going to happen as this paralytic is lowered down in front of Jesus. Because Jesus, at this point, he's healed fevers, he's healed sickness, he's cast out demons, he's even healed a leper. And so as you see this caught lowered down, and you were there, you may have even elbowed a friend next to you saying, a paralytic, watch this, this this is going to be good. And you would have probably even anticipated the words that you would have heard Christ say elsewhere. Be healed. And yet, the surprise in all of this, as this man in his great need is lowered before Jesus, is that you would have not heard the words, be healed, but you're forgiven. This was the surprise in the entire moment. Do you think... These four men were shocked to hear what Christ said. Taking into consideration all of their effort, everything they went through and their creativity to get this man literally in front of Jesus. What do you think their response was as they heard these words? I mean, the physical need is so obvious Clearly, this is why we came. He is paralyzed. You can heal. We don't even need to say words. It is so apparent as to what this man needs. And yet Christ sees this need and chooses to say, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a wonderful surprise and a needed reminder for every single one of us today. Oftentimes, what you and I perceive as our most obvious need is not really our ultimate need. Think about that. Let me put it this way. There most certainly are certain afflictions that drive us to Christ in order that he might deal with our ultimate affliction. To this man, to his friends, to everyone in crowd, The obvious affliction is the paralysis of his body. But Jesus acknowledges that, but looks beyond that and acknowledges the need of his soul. That is what is happening here. Our greatest need is often hidden from the human eye, but not to God. He sees the greatest need. He acknowledges the need of the soul. And maybe you've found this to be true in your own life. Maybe you've seen very specific instances, or even perhaps in the middle of one right now, 
a certain need that drives you to Christ. A certain need where you say, I do not have what I need, but I am hoping that Christ does. I've actually heard that he could maybe help. Sometimes that takes the form of a broken marriage, a distant parent, bankruptcy, some form of addiction or divorce, a wayward child. And you come thinking that this is your real need. This is my most obvious problem. And if Christ would fix this, then my life would be so much better. Then I would be at rest. But Jesus, he has a long history of gladly welcoming us and receiving us in those temporal needs in order that he might expose our greatest need. In order that he might put his finger here and say, this is actually what you need. Our sin, our need for forgiveness, the reality of the condition of our soul. And how many in every age of redemption can testify of this same experience of this same man right here? And as I begin to get to know many of you as your pastor and hear your stories and your testimony, even what you're walking through right now, how often that many of God's people can say that it is through the blessing of affliction that I have found true blessing for my soul. It sounds so ironic and so backwards, but that is the testimony of followers of Christ. Look at the countless examples in Scripture, the testimony of brothers and sisters who've gone before us, that how we often learn wisdom by affliction, how we often find that grief brings mercy, how we find that losses provide gains. This is the paradox of the kingdom of heaven and the means by which Christ mysteriously most often works. Psalmist would say in Psalm 119, 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Literally, that I might learn of the Lord, that I might learn of his ways. As we've sung this morning, that I might learn of his goodness. Friends, do not be surprised to find that a particular need most definitely brings you to your knees and drives you to Christ, only to find him putting his finger on your greater need, the condition of your soul the reality of your sin and your need for forgiveness. This is the surprise, but there's also a scandal. The scandal is that in the words of these scribes, a man speaks for God. A man speaks for God. Because for the scribes, the problem here is quite obvious. And although they spoke to themselves, as Mark says, questioning in their hearts, their unspoken question was the exact question that everybody's thinking in that room. Who does he think he is? Who does this man, Jesus, think he is? Because understand, these religious authorities, they were 100% accurate in their thinking. Only God can forgive sins. And notice, Jesus does not challenge their theology, but 
their perception of who he is. He doesn't go after their theology of forgiveness. He goes after, who do you say that I am? They were experts in the Old Testament scriptures. They would have understood, going back to God's revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, when Yahweh says, I am to Moses, they understood that forgiveness belongs to God alone. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. That's God's responsibility. Well, we've said how the book of Isaiah is such a helpful lens in interpreting the gospel of Mark, and we find these same themes, Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. Or even more explicitly in Isaiah 43, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. David understood this. How many times have your eyes poured over Psalm 51 in your own confession of sin, even mouthing the same words that David offered up to God? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What the scriptures teach is that all sin is ultimately against God. It has impact and ramifications for those around us. The effects of sin are felt by us when other people sin against us. But ultimately... All sin is against God. Because as we read our Bibles, we discover that when it speaks of sin, it's not simply the deeds that we do or fail to do. It is the fact that we do not acknowledge God to be God and image him as we've been created to be. So ultimately, all sin is unbelief and rebellion against God. So the scribes, again, are absolutely 100% accurate in saying only God forgives sin. And who is this man who sees this paralytic and takes it upon himself to say, your sins are forgiven? The scribes, they arrive really at this fork in the road, and they basically have two options. Jesus is God, and he has the authority to say such a thing, or Jesus is laying hold of a particular authority that he most certainly does not have, and this is blasphemy. This is usurping authority that does not belong to him. Those are the two options. And unfortunately, they choose the latter. But what I love, in this twist of irony, is they're, as Mark says, silently questioning in their own hearts how this man could speak for God this same man answers their questions before they even speak them. Because he's God. He is God in the flesh. That is the scandal, but there is also great significance here. 
The significance, according to Jesus, is that the Son of Man has authority. Verse 7, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Patiently and quite tactfully, Jesus meets these men right where they're at, at the intersection of authority and ability. At one level, it is really quite easy to say, your sins are forgiven. How do you prove that? What is the evidence that you have the authority to say such a thing? How could I even test that authority right there? Even if I do agree with it, how do I know you have the authority to say such a thing? So in one sense, it's quite easy to say, sins are forgiven. And in that same thinking, it's actually much harder to say, rise and walk, because as soon as those words pass over your lips, immediately everybody's eyes look to the paralytic. Does he have the ability and the authority to actually say, rise and walk? So Jesus knows everything that they're questioning in perfect wisdom, turns to the paralytic and says, arise. And Jesus' announcement is quite important because so that you may know, did you notice the title he gives to himself? That you may know that the Son of Man has authority. This is the first of 14 times that Jesus will use this title, the Son of Man. And he's going to actually fill it out as we read through the Gospel of Mark because it's curious. You say, what does he mean by Son of Man? But as you keep reading Mark, you get a little more clarity. It's kind of like the charcoal sketch that begins, but then is filled in with full color and shading so that by the end of the gospel of Mark, when you hear son of man, you say, I know what that means. It's even a part of our congregational reading this month. The son of man actually has its anchor back in Daniel chapter seven, which clarifies for us this one who would come, who would have authority and have dominion all of days over all nations. It's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. 
And if you're familiar with your scriptures, you know that those are themes and images that continue to come up throughout the story of redemption, most specifically in the book of Revelation, reminding us that all nations, tribes, tongues, and people will come before this great king and his eternal kingdom, and he will rule them in righteousness. And Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He anchors his authority and the very foundation that he is the eternal king. He is the one with perfect dominion that shall never erode or evaporate or pass away. It shall never be destroyed. So by referencing the prophet Daniel, Jesus places the focus of his authority in his identity. Who does this man think he is? he's the son of man the one with all authority and all right God alone forgives sin and I say to you your sins are forgiven that's exactly what Jesus is doing this is why we must read everything that Jesus teaches everything that he promises every that he everything that he commands with this understanding that he is God that he has all authority That means your perception of Jesus is wrong if you consider him to be just some spiritual sage, some meek and mild encourager who just has a scripture verse to send you out on your day to fill you up, or that he is some political revolutionary that waves your country's flag to lead you in a particular direction. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's the son of man and the son of God. And because of this, he is the perfect mediator between God and man, the one who's been anointed with all authority to forgive sins. The Heidelberg Catechism walks through this same logic in this question and answer format. It's wonderfully simple and helpful. Beginning in question 12. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? That's a good question. Answer. God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Next question. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Verse 14, can another creature, any at all, pay for this debt? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and delivers others from it. Next question, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One, who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. Why must the mediator be true and righteous human? God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin, but a sinful human could never pay for others. 17. Why must the mediator also be truly God? So that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath and his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And the great question, number 18, 
Who is this mediator, true God at the same time, a true and righteous human? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given to us to completely deliver us and make us right with God. That is the logic. That is the question that must be answered if we are going to understand who Jesus is. And friends, this is why we lift our voices and sing at the top of our lungs. This is why we breathe this great sigh of relief when we hear the gospel each time. This is why we can speak that we have a peace that surpasses all understanding because we have a true mediator who's truly a righteous man and truly God. Dear Christian, your sin deserves justice. And the demands of justice have been satisfied in Christ. He is the righteous one who is truly God. And by his authority, he looks at you and he says, your sins are forgiven. That is what you hear as a Christian, as a child of God. And friend, if you are here feeling a particular weight of grief, because of your sin, because of some affliction, because of some concern or some need, please know that Christ not only sees that specific need, but he also this morning sees your ultimate need, the condition of your soul. And the root of all of our grief and the source of all of our abiding pain is sin. And Christ is the one, the only one, who proclaims forgiveness from that sin. Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins. But what these accounts also tell us is that Jesus Christ has the ambition to pursue sinners. Keep reading. Look down at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Holy Spirit working through Mark has given these accounts to show you and I something wonderfully refreshing about the Lord Jesus. Not only do we hear that he most certainly has the authority to forgive sins, Mark includes these accounts right alongside that we would know something of Christ's posture towards sinners. Because to simply hear that Christ forgives sin, it is good news. But what is his posture towards sinners? Does he begrudgingly say, You're forgiven. 
Because that matters, doesn't it? These two accounts help us answer that question. First of all, what we see in verses 13 and 14 is that he seeks out the hated and the despised. He seeks out the hated and the despised. In content, this story sounds really familiar, especially if you just read chapter 1, because in content, it parallels the calling of the four fishermen in Mark 1, 16 through 20-ish. Both stories describe Jesus passing beside the sea. Both times, Jesus calls out and says, follow me, and they follow, and they go after Christ. But in its impact, this story in Mark 2 is entirely different. It is in a class by itself. And in order to understand the shock of this invitation, we need a little bit of a background concerning the tax collector. Levi essentially was a customs official, and these tax collectors would be placed at bridges, canals, trade routes, state roads, and Capernaum being there by the sea and and really a merchant town, there would be a lot of commerce. And Rome, occupying Israel, would demand taxes on all of these goods that were sold. And so they would say, there's a certain tax that must be levied, and you, tax collector, bring us that, and whatever you can get above and beyond that, that's your means of living. These tax collectors were renowned for their dishonesty. They were infamous as extortioners because they made their money by trying to get as much as they could in order to make a living. And while the position was extremely lucrative, it was also really costly. Jews who'd become tax collectors were regarded as traitors. You work for the occupying nation. You are funding their very oppression of us. And they gave up their social status. They gave up their participation in the synagogue. And they were a disgrace to their families. And the religious leaders, if you listen to the teaching there that they would give in Christ's day, they lumped tax collectors in with murderers, adulterers, thieves, pretty much the same thing, all synonyms. If a tax collector entered a house, everything there would be declared unclean. The rabbis even taught that it's actually permissible to lie to one of these tax collectors because they're not worth even being honest to. So therefore, you can lie to them just to preserve any sense of property that you want to keep. You put all this together and you can say, this is hardly the sort of candidate for discipleship, but this is exactly who Jesus goes after. He pursues the hated and the despised. The same one that the scribes would turn their nose up and say, unclean, Jesus would turn towards and say, follow me. Come after me. Learn of me. The one who would have been despised by father and mother, Jesus befriends. Think about that. And when Jesus befriends you, and you're a man like Levi or Matthew, as he's also known, when you're a man like that and Jesus befriends you, you throw a party. And you invite your tax collector friends to say, let me introduce you to this one who actually came after me. He pursued me. 
He wants me to follow him. And so he throws a party at his home. Jesus also, we're told, draws near to the unclean and the unworthy. He draws near. This is 15 and 17. This dinner was a scandal for the scribes and the religious leaders. Because this same Jesus who taught in the synagogue and teaches with authority and has just declared himself to be God and having the authority to forgive sin saddles up next to tax collectors and sinners in the same house that we are looking at and we are saying that is a whole mess of uncleanness. And Jesus is right there in the middle of that. Now, in order to understand the concern that the scribes are having with Jesus, we need to view this incident through first century eyes, specifically first century Jewish eyes, devoted to the scriptures, preserving the integrity of the scriptures, and preserving the worship of God. See, the Pharisees and the scribes didn't start out bad. They started out tremendously good. They started out with all the same things that we would affirm as Christians, Reformed Christians, Scripture-loving Christians, God-glorifying loving Christians. But something happened. The scribes in that day were these authoritative instructors of the law within the temple, in the synagogues, in Judea and Galilee, and they were the prominent members of the ruling religious leadership. They were greatly respected within the community. And you could find a scribe if you happened to be walking in the marketplace because they looked different. To set themselves apart, they dressed a certain way. They wore long robes. And at the bottoms, there was this memorial fringe that was very symbolic, speaking of the importance of the scriptures. They had prayer boxes, known as phylacteries, hanging from their bodies, which they would carry around little written copies of God's law. And it was common for people to rise when a scribe would enter the room. Or bow before them as you pass them on the street. And this devotion to holiness and preserving the integrity of the scriptures, as we said, began as something actually really good, but it has been twisted into something actually cancerous within the worship of God and the understanding of God's grace. The scribes understood these categories of righteous and sinner. Categories, don't forget, that God himself has defined. We just read through the Psalms, and how many times did we hear of righteous and wicked, righteous and sinner? It's not the categories that are the problem here. It's not the existence of these groups. But what is the problem is the qualifications for being in these groups and maintaining your status in that group. Who are the righteous? How am I understood to be righteous? And how do I ensure that I maintain this righteousness? Therein lies the problem. And to the scribes, the scandal was that Jesus sat with those, befriending those, most certainly deserving judgment. They are sinners. And he shared in this cultural event that communicated friendship. This Jesus who claims to be God and forgives sin also befriends the unclean and the unworthy. 
He doesn't even demand that they clean themselves up before he enters their house. He doesn't demand that they forsake their tax collecting before he shares a meal with them. He draws near to them as they are? Yes. Yes. That's what Mark wants us to see. At the core, what is so offensive to these scribes, or really a self-righteous moralist, the scribes just have new uniforms today and new names. They still exist. At the core, what is so offensive is that they see the undeserving receiving kindness and grace instead of judgment, and that is perceived as unfair. After all, look at all of my efforts to maintain my separation, my holiness, to declare my devotion. If grace comes to the undeserving, then what good is my efforts? They're getting the same thing that I want? That is unfair. And injustice and unfairness is always the cry of the self-righteous moralist. It's at this point that our allegiance to either gospel or morality becomes blatantly clear. Here's what I mean. The gospel says that God does not leave us as we are, but he comes to us as we are. Morality says that God requires something of us before he does something in us. And how do you know if you're a gospelist or a moralist? Do you need to forsake sin in order to come to Christ? Think about it. What do you say when you call people to come to Christ? On what grounds are they entitled to come? Stop sinning and then come to Jesus. Is our, what we're asking, is our forsaking of sin the fruit of God's electing grace or the prerequisite to obtain this grace? It's not throwing out the idea of forsaking of sin, but when does that happen? Do I forsake sin to get grace? Or does grace come and by the fruit of God's electing grace, I forsake sin? One is moralism and one is gospel. The scribes were offended because the gospel disrupts self-righteous Morality. If our forsaking of sin and the cleaning up of our ways must come before we come to Christ, then the gospel becomes a message of grace only for the credentialed, not an offer of Christ to all with the promise of justification to the ungodly who believes. Because the question is, Mr. Moralist, how much forsaking must I do? Though I see this sin, but surely there's probably some other sin I don't see. Shouldn't I be worried about that sin, forsaking that, and submitting all? How much submission must I actually give? How much devotion must I actually have before I come? 
It's a slippery slope, isn't it? The scribes were up in arms because they believed that the favor of God only comes to the credentialed. And look at Jesus, the supposed rabbi who claims to be God, eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so through Jesus' interaction with these outcasts, we learn something wonderful. We learn something about how the grace of God actually comes to sinners. It is, as we said, simultaneously the greatest comfort and the greatest rebuke. The error of the scribes and the moralist today is thinking of holiness as something detached from God himself. Don't make that mistake. Let me put it this way. It is the error in thinking that the benefits of the gospel could be separated from Christ, who is himself the gospel. All the benefits of the gospel, and by that I mean justification, reconciliation, redemption, adoption, sanctification, all of those benefits come by the means that we are united to Christ. They come to us as Christ comes to us. We receive those because Christ has come. And Calvin would often summarize it this way, saying the gospel is Christ clothed with his gospel. It just completely envelops us. And it's not benefits that he gives. It is that he has given us himself. And so how offensive to think that my idea of holiness is really detached from God himself, and it's just something I do or I need or I pursue apart from God himself. That is why it is absolutely horrible news and a complete distortion of grace to say that we must do something to ourselves before God does something for us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Laboring under heavy-laden burdens are the assurances that none are disqualified in coming because of some weakness or unworthiness. When Christ dines in the home of Levi, it corrects our understanding of grace and it magnifies the gospel. Because it is not, how do I get the holiness and the purity that I need to come to Christ? It is, how do I get Christ? And you hear from Mark's gospel that he comes after sinners. He seeks out the outcast. He seeks out the unclean. That is what Mark wants us to see. And this is essentially precisely how Jesus responds to this, the scribe's question there in verse 17. Jesus uses this simple illustration to challenge their thinking and justify his decision to be at Levi's house. He just basically says, shouldn't a doctor be where the sick people are? Let that sit on you for a second. 
this certainly should make sense. If he really is the Messiah, if he really is the rescuer, if he really is the redeemer of God's people, shouldn't Jesus be right in the middle of those needing rescue? Shouldn't he be in the middle of those in bondage so that he can deliver them? Shouldn't he come to the very ones who are crying out? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. But according to the reasoning of the scribes, they would say to the sick, get better so you can go see the doctor. That's the absurdity of moralism. That is the offense of a sort of gospel that would say, get better so that you can come to Christ. And Mark would have us to see that that is not at all the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Jesus is wonderfully good news for sinners. Because Christ has the authority to forgive sins, and even better, he draws near to sinners, bringing grace. Forgiveness comes not to the holy, but to those who know their sin. And the book of Romans announces the same message as Paul says, God justifies the ungodly. Figure that one out. In reality, all are sinners. But it's only those who know they're sinners that say, I need a physician. I have need. I need help. Christ is not just undoing the categories here of righteous and sinner. He's dismantling their understanding of who are the righteous and who is the sinner. That's what needs to be corrected. Now, I think it's quite easy to look down on the scribes. It's quite easy to call somebody else a moralist. I mean, how could they have warped God's heart so badly, thinking that sinners are much less deserving, and the arrogance to think of themselves as so much more deserving? But the longer I walk with the Lord, I am convinced that the default mode of the human heart is the moralist. It is the scribe. It is the Pharisee. Because the longer that we walk with Jesus, for some reason, the easier it can become, not necessarily, but it can become to be convinced of our own separation from sin as the basis for God's favor. Apart from the renewal of the gospel, we become the separatists. We become the same people putting others in categories of deserving, undeserving, worthy, unworthy, righteous, unrighteous. And oftentimes we begin to believe that because we're the church-going, gospel-centered, Puritan-reading people who somehow we're deserving, not for justification, no, by grace alone. But we somehow begin to think that because of all of those things, surely there's just a little bit more of favor. God looks at me a little bit differently. We're all his children as his people, but there's me. So surely my day should go a little bit better. That's moralism. That's the self-righteous scribe. And slowly we begin to believe that the scriptures 
that speak to the wickedness of the wicked, the foolishness of the foolish, the rebellion of the rebellion, surely that's somebody else. Who is that for this morning? It's at this point that we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily, reminding ourselves that apart from Jesus and his pursuit of sinners, we are the fool. We are the wicked. We are the rebel, the unfaithful, the corrupt. This is why McShane would say, the seeds of all sins are in my heart, which is often quoted, but there's an and. It's equally as humbling. The seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. How perceptive of the human heart. The seeds are there, brothers and sisters, and the danger is that we do not see them. The danger is thinking that somehow my separation from them and how long it's been since I've committed that sin or how long it's been since I have been walking with the Lord that somehow that adds some extra measure upon God's favor of me. Jesus embraces sinners and pursues sinners in their sin, but he does not leave us there. He gladly embraces us as we are, but he does not leave us as we are. And it's in the comforting news of his grace that we are those who anchor our lives in this good news. And the same ones who turn to our neighbor and say, I have great news. That is what the gospel does. And that's what it creates. Father, we ask that you would be so kind and so gracious to us that you would continue to cause the good news of Jesus Christ to penetrate our very souls, that we would be those who most readily and most freely and in all faith are the ones who come to you knowing that our greatest need is for you to say sins are forgiven. And in the same time, hearing that announcement that we would be those who are most humbled and most joyful in knowing that you are the one who pursues us, that you draw near to us, Lord, we confess that we are so prone to look at ourselves and our efforts and ambitions and have that eclipse your great effort to draw us to yourself and your ambition to pursue sinners. Lord, what we are saying, it's not that we loved you, but that you loved us. Thank you for the refreshing, wonderful good news that we read and hear and mark. We pray that you would continue to shape our lives and transform us by it, that you continue to build up Veritas Church, that we would be gospel lovers and that you would guard us from moralism. And we pray that you would continue to renew us in our homes and this particular membership and congregation, that you might continue to manifest your glory to the watching world of testifying how you seek and save sinners drawing them to yourself, lavishing grace upon them, that you might continue to receive the glory until you come, we pray. Amen.